to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. All right, are you ready for God's Word this morning? Yeah? Awesome. Uh, let's pray as we start. Oh God, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to... Uh, even hear from your word this morning. Lord, we don't take this lightly. Lord, we know that in your words, uh, in what we're about to uh, hear in a moment, our life, uh, God, that you're speaking through your scriptures. God, we ask that today uh, the Logos will be turned to Rima, God, that we will receive a fresh word from you this morning. God, I ask that you speak to the hearts of your people. Father, I ask uh, that Today, that let not the story be uh, Andre preached a good word. Let not the story be uh, Andre brought some great points, but let the story be God spoke to me. And God, I, I ask for every ear in this room right now to be open to hear the voice of a loving Father. Lord, we are expectant for you to speak. Lord, we know that you are speaking even right now. We say we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Got my preaching shirt on. If you're mobile. You know, the cross of Jesus Christ is a, a glorious, glorious day, right? You know, we, we uh, sing about it often. We preach on it. You know, how uh, darkness, how that dark, gruesome image of the cross in an instant, in a moment, was turned into something beautiful and glorious. Amen? You know, the cross of Jesus Christ, something that... Uh, you know, was, was a form of execution, was how Romans tortured uh, criminals. Today, you know, it becomes a symbol of beauty, a symbol of adoration. We call it the wonderful cross. Glorious, beautiful, amazing, right? Cross of Jesus Christ. But the Bible promises us of a day that, uh, of a day of glory that will far eclipse that day. You know, the book of Revelations accounts for this. You know, John, uh, the writer of the book of Revelations, was caught up in the heavenly vision. And in Revelations 4, I encourage you to read it if you have the time. He describes this throne room encounter. You know, tons of stuff going on. Angels, the, the elders casting their crowns are amazing. They're seeing the scene of heaven. Glorious, glorious moment. And I don't know about you, but it stirs something within me, uh, uh, that longing, that pining for that moment where I get to see the Lord face to face in all His glory, in all His splendor, in all His beauty. Amen? Amen? It's exciting. If you don't know if it's, ex it's exciting, I want to tell you it's exciting. <laughs> but you know, at the end of Revelations 4, um, uh, John uh, accounts for this. He says that uh, he hears the, the, the song of of, uh, of heaven, he hears uh, the elders uh, are singing this song. And you know, we, we are on this series uh, discovering uh, what honor is. And honor really is the culture of heaven. It really is what heaven's atmosphere is all about. Right? In heaven, it's, it's all about honor. It's all about giving glory and, and honor to he who is worthy. And John accounts for uh, this song that the, the 24 elders sang as they fell down and as they worshipped him. They say this, they say, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. 
I want to read that first couple of lines again. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honour and power. We all know this. We all know that God is omnipotent, right? How many of you know what the word omnipotent means? It means all-powerful. And so we know God is the one who has all power, right? He is all-powerful. But when we read this, this passage of scripture, it says this, you, Lord, are worthy of glory, honor, and power. I don't know about you, but it brings to mind a question. How can we give power to an all-powerful God? How can we do that? You know, we sing about it often. You know, we end our times of worship with, and you get all the glory, all the honor, all the power, all the praise. Amen. But have we actually uh, stopped and take a moment to really ponder on what that means? What the implication of what we're saying actually is. How do we, mere human beings, give power to an all-powerful God? The suggestion is this. The suggestion is that God being all-powerful creates a power apart from himself that can be returned onto him. I know it's, it's, a, it's a strange concept, but God has created a power apart from himself, puts it apart from himself. And this power can be returned back to him. And we see that power being demonstrated in the Garden of Eden. Humanity was presented with a choice. Listen to the voice of God, the commands of God, or listen to the voice of the serpent, of the deceiver. Humanity made the wrong decision. They picked wrongly. Is it God's will for humanity to fall? I don't believe so. But humanity did. They had choice. They had a will. They, we have a will. The Bible describes the will of God two different ways. There are two different words for the will of God and they are extremely different in nature. One is used to describe the absolute will of God. It means it means to establish. It means he has commanded it to be so. That is used to describe the will of God. But in other verses, the will of God is translated as such. It is his desire. The Bible says this, that it is his desire that none shall perish. Are people perishing? This is yes. This is no. Are people perishing? Yes. Does he will for them to be perish? No. It is his desire. And so then we, we, we see that self-will, the power of choice, is freely given and presented to humanity. Can I put it to you that in order for love to exist, there needs to be choice. Without choice, it's, uh, we are, all we are left with is compliance. But love is a choice. For those of you who are dating, for those who are, who, of you who are married, you know for a fact that love is not just a fluffy feeling. But love is choosing. Love is a resolve to stay in it in spite of circumstances, in spite of seeing things that are unfavorable. Love is a choice. And in order for us to love God, He needs to give us that choice, that power of choice. In order for us to experience reward, we need to be presented with the ability, with the power to choose. 
Reward comes in the presence of options. There is a power that God has created that He has put apart from Himself that can be returned back to Him. He has given you the power of choice, the power of self-will. And you get to make the decision to give it back to Him. Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive all glory, all honor, and all power. In the same way that God has given you power, He has given you honor as well. Now, I talked about it last week that if we as human beings don't learn how to receive honor, then we will have no crown to cast at His feet. There is an honor that He has created the ability to value, to put worth to something that is placed in you that can be returned back to Him. You're making sense? Are you following me? I'm sorry, I just closed my notes. Today, today I, I, I want to talk about something. I want to talk about honoring a God that has everything. That's my sermon title this morning. Honoring a God that has everything. It's a beautiful picture. I am not biased at all. <laughs> Honoring a God that has everything. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm sure some of you have like friends who you think are really affluent or, or wealthy or like they have like everything already. And then you know, their birthday comes or like special occasion comes and you're like, oh, you struggle. Like what do I buy for them, right? How many of you have friends like that, yeah? Well, the person have everything already. What do I buy? You know, what, what do I give? And in and some way, you know, uh, somehow, like, that's how I feel uh, with the Lord as well. Like, He has everything. He's all-powerful. He's glorious. He has angels. He has everything. Like, what can I give to a God that has everything? How do I honor a God that has everything? And it's, you know, I, I phrase it that we're honoring a God that has everything. But to me, it's, it's less of a statement, but more of a question that... Um, I think, you know, we, we will be asking ourselves this question for the rest of our lives. And the question for us this morning is this. In approaching this topic, does this sound as an obligation or is this a genuine desire in your life? For years, the church has gotten it wrong. We have taught people that the way to intimacy is true spiritual discipline. It doesn't work that way. It is intimacy that produces spiritual discipline. Nobody has ever disciplined themselves into intimacy. How does discipline come about? Discipline comes about when you see something that is valuable, that is of worth to you, and you make practical commitments, make decisions to protect that which you deem as valuable. It's like putting walls to a city. We need to get the order right. It's intimacy that produces discipline. And maybe today, you know, as I'm talking about this subject of honor, of giving God something that, that might cost you, something that uh, you deem as sacrifice, this sounds like an obligation to you. Can I encourage you this morning that, you know, you don't need to beat yourself up. But what you need is, is to go back into a place of intimacy. It's intimacy that gives you the resolve, that gives you the strength to make commitments to the Lord. Intimacy is what produces spiritual discipline. I'm making sense. I believe a longing to be found right and pleasurable to the Lord is an act of honor. I value you, Lord. I see you as worthy. And because 
I see you as such. I make practical decisions in my life because I want to be pleasurable to you. Making sense? You know, I, I remember, uh, I think a couple of years ago when I first got back from the US, I um, celebrating Amy's birthday. And um, we usually like, do it pretty big because convenience, uh, her, her birthday is on the 1st of July, mine's on the 2nd of July. So we go for one huge dinner. And I remember uh, taking her to a really nice place, uh, buying her a bunch of gifts, and uh, it was awesome. Andre spent a lot of money. and That gives me like some currency for, you know, if I mess up, they're like, oh, you know, but... I'm just, just kidding. <laughs> I get like one free day in a year. Second of July is my day. I get to... I'm just kidding. But, uh, but yeah, I was exceptionally nice. I bought, I, bought, I bought a lot of things and uh, we went for a really nice meal. Uh, why, why did I do that? Because I, I valued her, right? I, I, she's worth something to me. And I illustrate that. I express that through uh, gestures, through actions. But I, I remember uh, somewhere around the dinner, you know, and... Amy's love language is uh, words of affirmation, uh, quality time. And uh, something just possessed me the night before. I think it's the Spirit of God or something. But I uh, was like, you know what? I'm going to write a poem. Yeah, and I wrote a poem. Yeah, I, I'm not going to read it. It's, yeah. <laughs> so so I, I wrote a poem, and, and, uh, and it was a great poem. <laughs> um, and, and I decided to, to read it to her, big mistake, in a crowded restaurant. And so I started reading to her this poem that I wrote in a restaurant. And she, like, straight up starts, like, weeping, bawling, like, heaving kind of thing, like, I was young, that kind of cry. No, and so she starts crying, right? Uh, after I re- read this, like, poem. Because um, it, it, it meant a lot to her, right? It, it was something that... Uh, she uh, valued a lot. She felt love. She felt uh, uh, really, uh, yeah, love through words. But I see, the poem didn't cost me anything. <laughs> the dinner, <laughs> the, the outing, the things I buy for her, that cost me a lot of money, but the poem didn't cost me anything. What's my point? Chips go freeze best. I think that's, it was, it, that's in Proverbs, right? Is it? No. <laughs> What's my point? Okay. There is an honor that is expressed through big gestures, right? There is an honor that is expressed through uh, sacrifices that you make. But there is an honor that you express through valuing what the other party values. Honor is this. Honor is the communication that comes from the recognition of value and worth. There's an honor that's expressed through these big, grandiose gestures. But there's another kind of honor that's slightly more intimate. It comes from proximity. It comes from knowing what the person values and choosing to value that as well. Anyone who friends with me know that I abhor, <laughs> I hate late coming. It's just something that I just don't like. I don't, don't, don't like late coming. And, and I, I know it might sound pretty ridiculous to you, but... To me, when, when someone comes late, I feel like my time is not valued. And I take it very personally. I'm like, oh. And somehow, like, God like, just puts like, best friends in my life that are all a bit more liberal when it comes to time. You know? I'm like, ah. Oh. It's like, you ask for patience, right, Andre? Nah. You know? and, uh, and so, like, most of my friends, 
But, but here's the thing, you know, my, my friends have learned over time that that is something that I deem as valuable. Right? And so they try their best. <laughs> we are not perfect, all works in process, but they try their best to value what I value. I'm making sense. I'm making sense. Because this is what honor would do, okay? Honor will cause you to value something just because the person sees it as valuable. It doesn't stop at what you think is logical, what you think is justifiable. But because of relationship, because you value the person, it causes you to value that which the person values as well. That's the kind of honor that I want to talk about this morning. How do you honor a God that has everything? You value what He values. Value what He values. It's like Amy laughs at all my jokes. You do, right? You think I'm the funniest person on planet Earth? Yes? Make sure it's going to be in her vows, uh, so she cannot back up. Andre is the funniest person on planet Earth. So, are you all doing good? So what, the question of the hour is, what does God value, right? If we want to honor God, then we have to be on a discovery, we have to be on a process of discovering what the Lord values. Because we, we don't just want to stop at honoring Him with big gestures, right? That's great. But the kind of honor that touches a person is an honor that is that is expressed, directed towards what is in the person's heart. Right? You guys are doing great. You guys come to worship, Bible study, you pray, you fellowship. Great. But I'm saying there, there is a, there's a summons, there's an invitation, if you will, to, to experience God in that manner, to honor Him, to honor His heart, to, to value what He values. You know, making sense. So today, you know, I want, I want to look at the Bible. That's, that's why we're here. I want to look at the Bible. Uh, explore three scriptures uh, which exhort believers to honor God in different ways. And, um, and I'll just be very frank with you. I'm going to look at three very scary words. Uh, we, we hear about it in church often, and usually they come with very uh, negative uh, connotations, or people just avoid and sidestep these words altogether. Today, I want to talk about obedience, conviction, and reverence. Okay. If you feel the need to leave, please. But I, I want to correct some uh, wrong mindsets and beliefs when it comes to uh, these three, uh, I believe, really key uh, aspects of the kingdom of God. But I also believe that this is uh, really huge on God's heart. And if, you want, uh, if we are serious about wanting to grow in our honor to God, then we need to be serious about these three areas of, in our life. Amen? Alright, so the first... Uh, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at obedience. I'm going to read from First uh, John chapter 5. It goes like this. Everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Christ is a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves also Him who is the Father's child. The fact that we love God Himself and obey His commands is a proof that we love God's children. Love for God means obedience to His commands and His commands are not irksome. How many of you know what the word uxa means? It's like, ugh, irritated. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have that kind of a, 
approach or feeling when we when you read the, the word of God or when a preacher gets up and tells you like, hey, the Bible says this, like you need to do such and such. And it feels heavy, it feels hard, it feels difficult. But, but the Bible says this, the Bible says it so clearly that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Can I put it to you that if the word of God comes off burdensome to you, then there's something that you need to fix. It's in the mercy that gives you the resolve to discipline. It's in the mercy that gives you the resolve to commitment. If the word of God, if the commands of God comes off burdensome to you, then there is something serious that you need to look at, that you need to fix. It's not normal. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Ah, okay. Obedience is, it's, to his commands is how we prove our love for him. It's a natural outflow of someone who is in relationship with the Lord. The Greek word for obedience is made out of two words, meaning under or beneath and meaning to hear. Therefore, the meaning of the word could be stated as to hear under. It carries with it the idea of subordination or the recognition of authority and wisdom. Radical obedience then is closely linked to our sense of hearing. The Bible says is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds, or in some translations, is proceeding from the mouth of God. Our relationship with God is supposed to be active. Amen? Man is supposed to live by, not by bread alone, but by every word that is proceeding from the mouth of God. That means we don't just stop at the Bible. We pursue His voice. It's not the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible. It's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the Bible is not important. But this... This is the Word of God, yes. But this Word of God points to the Word of God. He is the Word of God. This, you, you can look at it as it's like a portal that takes you into an experience with He who is the personification of the Word of God. doesn't stop here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that is proceeding from the mouth of God. Obedience is, is all about hearing. The struggle of our Christian faith is not our inability to hear God's voice. The struggle of our Christian faith is our ability to hear the voice of others. The struggle of our Christian faith is not our inability to hear God's voice. The struggle of our Christian faith is our ability to hear the voice of others. Obedience is choosing to prioritize God's voice above the voice of others above the voice of societal norm, above the voice of what is culturally acceptable, above the voice of what is traditional, above the voice of intellect. Obedience is choosing to put His voice as a priority. God is speaking right now. It's not uh, Christians. We were designed <laughs> to hear the voice of God. And if you don't believe that God is speaking to you right now, your Bible reading It's going to be hor horrible because <laughs> that's, that's why some of you, you, you hate reading the Bible. Because you don't believe that God is able to speak to you through the Bible. Or, or the fact that God is speaking to you even right now. Our struggle is not our inability to hear God's voice. Our struggle is that we, in order to hear Him clearly, need to silence the voice of many others. Making sense. 
Obedience is not just about hearing, it's about listening. You don't need to be, uh, hearing is passive, but listening is active, is is attentive, right? Am I making sense? Uh, I want to read another passage of scripture, Psalms 32. Okay, goes like this. It says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and brittle, or they will not come to you. Many times when we uh, hear about uh, the word obedience, we think unconditional, uh, drone-like compliance, right? God said to do this, I must do this. And we think of obedience in, in that manner, right? There, there is no dialogue, there is no relationship in that. You know, if we think of obedience in that matter, like we are puppets, you know, held together by God's sovereign strings, then, you know, where is the aspect of God's unconditional love? Where's the aspect of God's relationship with you and me? Obedience is as much leaning in as it is leaning on. Obedience is, is about hearing, listening, and responding. To complete the process of obedience, you need to hear and listen and you need to respond. And obedience is, is a relational gift that God has given to you and me. And if, if I could uh, describe the process of obedience to you, it's about hearing the voice of God, listening to His commandments, and then leaning into His heart to hear His intention for you and me. See, that we are not to be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding. We are not to be like drones. But we should see obedience as an invitation into knowing Him more. Into in the mercy. Am I making sense? Obedience is a gift. Obedience then becomes the greatest expression of our faith, belief, and complete trust in the Lord. You know, we are all familiar with the story uh, where uh, God gives the, the, the instruction to Saul to kill the Amalekites, kill off their sheep, their goat, kill off all the livestock, kill off everything. God gives Saul that command. And we read on in the story and we know Saul disobeyed God. He kept the king, he kept the best of the livestock, right? And when he was questioned by the prophet, he said that, oh, I'm going to take this livestock, this best of of the sheep, of the goat, and I'm going to sacrifice to God. And the prophet rebukes him and says, isn't obedience far greater than sacrifice? The judgment against Saul was this. He thought that Big gestures of sacrifice could make up for a life of disobedience. He thought that he could compensate for disobedience with more sacrifice. And sometimes, as Christians, we think of uh, Christianity, we think of our relationship with God like a skill. Oh, maybe I don't need to do these things. Uh, Or I'm not really feeling like I want to do these things. Maybe I can make it up by doing more things here. Maybe I don't feel like going on a missions trip. Maybe I give more money to church the next day. And that eases your guilt. And you look at it as a skill. But in this story, the point illustrated to you and me is that sacrifice, no matter how big, no matter how good the intention of it is, does not compensate for disobedience. It was logical for Saul to keep the livestock, to keep the king. Logical. Why waste? Logical. But God called him to do something illogical. Kill it off. 
Obedience will do that to you sometimes. It might not look like the most logical decision, practically, but it's the most logical decision in the economy of heaven. Sacrifice does not compensate for obedience. I think so. We read of uh, the story of the rich young ruler. You know, he encountered Jesus. Jesus um, corrected him and tried to um, um, exhort him to do certain things. And you know, the, the sad uh, passage of scripture was that the rich young ruler couldn't give up his possessions and he went away sad. Right? We're all familiar with that passage, yes? Sometimes in our gatherings together, in our sermon times together, you know, some of us will leave this place sad or with certain emotions of like, oh, maybe I need to do better. And you leave this place. Or, oh man, I was stirred today. And then you leave this place. That isn't obedience. That feeling, that, that isn't obedience. Obedience comes or is completed with a resolve to change. And my encouragement to us as a body is that do not be satisfied with living here with just emotions to do good. But leave with resolve, leave with commitments, leave with decisions. Put structure in place in your life to change. Structure is what communicates value. Are you alive? Okay, is this the thinking phase or is this the... I don't know what you're saying. C.S. Lewis says this, that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. Say that again. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. Which one would you rather? Obedience is not measured by our ability to obey laws and principles. Obedience is measured by our response to God's voice. I'm going to look at a second word before I lose you. And it's the word conviction. Conviction. And I want to read from passage of scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify, in some translations, honor God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And I'll look at another passage of scripture, John 16, which describes the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is Jesus. He says, but now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me of righteousness because I go to my father and you see me no more of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. That line in the second paragraph, and when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. 
we're all familiar with uh, this, this thing called conviction, you know. Um, to some of us, we view it as like a chimney cricket kind of a, a thing, you no know, Pinocchio, like, let your conscience be a guide. And we, we see conviction as that, right? The Holy Spirit is here, and sometimes there's like the, the you know, the, the devil, the angel, like, ah, la, la, la. and we see our conviction as that, right? You know, it's, it's that uh, guide, and, and sometimes we see it as like a, a bad uh, negative feeling, right? That feeling of like, oh my gosh, like I done messed up. That, that, that kind of feeling, you know? That's conviction, right? That is healthy. That feeling of guilt when you messed up, that is healthy. But to stay in it isn't healthy. If I can illustrate to you, um, if I um, opened the door later, and open the door, and a large tiger is sitting outside for me. I'm like, ooh, a tiger. Do I have the right to be fearful? Yes, it's a tiger, right? Help me. Do I have the right to be fearful? Yes, Andre has the right to be fearful. I close the door, I run away, because tiger, eat. (laughs) If because of that, I never open a door for the rest of my life. Is that healthy? No. It's okay for me to have fear in a moment, but it's not okay for me to live in it. It's okay for you to have guilt. It's not okay for you to live in guilt. Conviction and condemnation are two drastically different things. Conviction wants to lead you away from sin. Condemnation wants to keep you there. Conviction is from God. Condemnation isn't. Godly conviction should lead you to a greater awareness of your need for God, not cause you to depart from God. You know, and conviction isn't just about that negative feeling, but conviction is an opportunity for you to gain insight, revelation into God's heart, into the way He sees things, to what He values, to what He sees as right or wrong. You know, I don't know if you realize, but... um, I have never fallen off a cliff. I absolutely hate heights. You know, there's a long escalator in Ion. I dread taking that every time because my hands will get very sweaty and I absolutely hate heights. Go to Tampines Mall, the top floor, I will like be all sweaty. You know, it's just something that I don't like. Thinking about it now makes my hands sweaty also. I, I absolutely hate heights. I don't know how many of you can relate, but I hate heights. Yeah, just hate heights. I've never fallen a cli- off a cliff because I've never gone to the edge of the cliff, right? Because I hate heights, I steer away from the edge as far as possible. What troubles me about Christian to- Christians today is that they are more concerned with discovering what is permissible than what is pleasurable to God. I've done a lot of couples counseling, you know, um, people want to get together. Um, and the questions often is like, oh, Andre, like, how far can we go physically? And then I'm like, what, do you want me to take like, a Barbie door and like, point to you, like, here cannot, here cannot, here cannot. <laughs> like, what do you do? Right. Like, oh, like, put tape here. Maybe I need to do that. I think the hallmark of a, of a person who is in relationship with God is that he's not just trying to discover what's permissible, but he's trying to discover what's pleasurable to God. 
What is on your heart, God? What brings you pleasure? What is right in your eyes? Some of you today, you are in this place and you know full well, like you come into the presence of God and, and I, I, I'm, I believe in speaking this prophetically even, like you come here and you have certain things that you know you are struggling with, you're, you're battling with, and you come in and you make this prayer almost like, God, do not bring this up or I don't want to talk about this or please make sure there's no prophetic word that like causes sin out of my life. And you keep these areas hidden until you deal with these areas until you bring it to the light. Jesus isn't really your Lord. He's either Lord of all, not Lord at all. Everything is permissible, but not everything is edifying. Brings glory, honor to God. Most believers today live from conviction to conviction. But God has called us to live with conviction. We live from conviction to conviction. What does that look like? It looks like, oh, I do this thing and I, oh, I feel bad. Okay, I stop doing this thing. Oh, I do this thing. Oh, I feel bad. I stop doing it. And we live from conviction to conviction. But God has called us to live with conviction. I know how mature you are as a believer by you being able to do, to do the right thing without any prompt. If a son is constantly looking at his father and like, what should I do now? What should I do now? What should I do now? Can I tell you that the son is not really matured or is secured in his father's love or know the father's heart? Once you know the father, once you know God, it should produce a certain measure of conviction in you. And conviction is this, is what it looks like this. It looks like values. It looks like beliefs. It looks like principles translated into a practical expression or commitment. That's what conviction is. And God has not called us to live from conviction to conviction, from guilt to guilt, but God has called us to live with godly conviction. And I know which kingdom you are part of by what values, beliefs, principles you profess to believe in and live out. To live with conviction means that you are led by Him. means that He is Lord of your lives. means that He is King over you. Amen, Andre. The Bible even says is that, that he has come to convict us of righteousness. You know, I believe he is come. I believe the conviction of sin is is, is a very real thing. You know, um, uh, people uh, will experience the Holy Spirit and they'll be convicted of their sin. But the Bible just doesn't stop there. It says that he has come to convict us of righteousness. Every time you function out of your God-given identity, the Holy Spirit will convict you. You have been saved, bought, and purchased with a price. You're a sinner no longer. You're saved, set free. If you're still identifying as a sinner today, then you will sin by faith. You will always function out of your identity. The Holy Spirit has come to convict you of righteousness. That means this, every time I do something that's contrary to what He has done for me, to contrary to who He says that I am, the Holy Spirit is going to come and it's going to convict you. No, you're not these things. No, you don't have to do these things to find fulfillment. No, this is not who you are. 
He's come to convict you of righteousness. And many times you look at the Holy Spirit as this like big brother kind of guy, you know, who's always looming and like, you done messed up, Aaron. No, but he didn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't work that way. He has come to convict you of righteousness. That making sense? You know, the, the Bible talks about, uh, the Bible, <laughs> Daniel, um, in, in the courts of Nebuchadnezzar, um, uh, we, we all know the story, and there's this uh, passage of scripture uh, that, that uh, has been speaking to me, and it says this, that Daniel withheld himself from the food that was pleasurable. He did not partake in that food that was pleasurable, desirable. He didn't partake in these things. And a few verses down, it says that Daniel was highly esteemed among men. That word esteemed in the Bible is the same exact word used to describe the food. Daniel was desirable, pleasurable to men because he chose to live out from his conviction. Because he chose the right thing, he became desirable. He became a person of favor. He became a person of influence. God, in his mercy, would withhold favor from you because he doesn't want that favor to crush you because you lack conviction and character. God in his mercy will withhold favor. It's a good thing. Because he doesn't want to crush you. Because your conviction and character won't hold up. Some of you, you lack favor in your life because you have completely sidestepped the issue of conviction, consecration, obedience. God would rather preserve you than crush you with favor because you lack character. Are you all following me? I'll say I want to talk about, I want to talk about reverence. reverence. Let's put the word reverence up. Scary word. I uh, love the word reverence. Uh, and this is my last point. I'll close with this. Uh, let's look at Psalms 22. It says this, Praise the Lord, all you who fear Him. Honor Him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show Him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. Bible seems to suggest that we praise Him, we honor Him through showing Him reverence. And the word reverence is a really interesting word. It comes from the Latin word uh, riverary, which means to stand in awe of, to be captivated by, or to be in wonder of. It says this in all of us, it says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We were made to be in the glory of God, to be impressed, to be captivated, to be in awe of. When we think of reverence, oftentimes we look at it as like, a, oh, we need to revere someone. That implies distance. That implies a certain measure of fear. That implies like, I don't want to go near a person. Like, I have to like fear him. But the Bible seems to uh, uh, suggest, or I believe uh, uh, the Word of God in my study seems to suggest that reverence should take a different form for the believer. Yes, the fear of the Lord is still applicable. And oftentimes, you know, I'll present the question like, God, how can we, uh, Andre, how can we uh, fear God and love Him at the same time? You know, how can we do the, the two things? So it doesn't, the Bible say that perfect love casts out all fear. There's, there's no more fear. But how can I fear and love at the same time? I would suggest that the person who is asking the question is not in a relationship or married. <laughs> I love Amy. But... 
at times, not all the time, small times, I, I fear. <laughs> How many of you agree with me, yeah? No, we often think of it as like two different things. Like you can't love and fear. And fear is not like a thing that causes you to depart away from, but fear is this thing that it's reverence. I stand in awe. It's, it's almost like I need to treat you right. I need to fear you. Biblical fear doesn't drive you away or cause you to move away, but biblical fear causes you to move closer. That's the kind of reverence that God has called us to partake in. I'm making sense. Much like honor, God intends for reverence to be done in the context of relationship. Um, we all know Pastor Daniel, yes. Uh, when, I, when I first got saved, you know, Pastor Daniel, the youth pastor, uh, big youth ministry, very cool, uh, very sad, you know. And, uh, and I remember my first uh, encounter with Pastor Daniel, you know, because we were in a really large youth ministry. No, I didn't really have a lot of access to him. And I remember uh, running into him once in a, in a prayer meeting. And, uh, and I was like, oh my gosh, it's Pastor Daniel. I remember like, I, I was looking at him and wanting to shake his hand, like my head like, like started trembling because I'm like, this is Pastor Daniel, you know. And, uh, and, and Pastor Daniel came up to me and he was like, hey man, how's it going? And he, uh, he went in for a, a high five, you know, and, and uh, you, you want to demonstrate this? And, and I went in for a high five, you know, and uh, yeah, going for a high five. Then all of a sudden, he changed it into a fist bump. And then I was like, oh, what do I do now? So I, I, I did this. And then uh, it didn't stop there. I grabbed the fist and then I shook it. That's my first meeting with Pastor Daniel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Reverence, right? Because Pastor Daniel was like, oh my gosh, Pastor Daniel. And I was really impressed because of his reputation. Today, I'm much closer to Pastor Daniel than I was, you know, many years ago. Right? We talk, we hang out all the time. Does it mean that I get to lose reverence for him? No. Familiarity is not a license for you to not choose honor. There is a kind of reverence and honor that only can occur in relationship. And I demonstrated it earlier, or I talked about it earlier. You can honor through big gestures, or you can honor, show value and worth by valuing what the person values. Today, my reverence for him has a context. I used to be impressed by his reputation. Today, I'm impressed with his heart. It's different. And we're called to partake in that reverence. That doesn't stop at reputation, but that reverence that comes within the context of relationship, within the context of knowing a person. You are amazing. I heard you were amazing, but now I know you are amazing. Reverence. Does it mean that I don't see any flaws or, or, or things that he needs to work on? I do, all the time. But here's this. Honor is celebrating who a person is without stumbling over who a person is not. That is honor. That is reverence. I'm making sense. I talked about it earlier. The, the word reverence means to stand in awe of, to be captivated by, to be in wonder. We were made to live in a state of wonder and awe in God. Wonder means we are impressed, amazed, and that leads to gratitude and thanksgiving. When we lose our wonder, we become ungrateful. I want us to look at a passage of scripture, and this is talking about the children of Israel. 
Is it there? Yep. Okay. So, um, Numbers 11. Eh? Numbers 11. Do we, do we have that? No, we don't. Okay. If you have your Bibles, <laughs> turn with me to Numbers 11, verse 4 to 6. And this is talking about the children of Israel, you know. Um, at this point, they were already led out of Egypt. They saw, you know, the, the, the seas part. They saw fire by night, cloud by day. They saw all these amazing um, miracles. And in Numbers 11, okay, um, we read about this account of the children of Israel complaining. Verses 4 to 6. Verse 4 says this, Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and saying, Who will give us meat to it? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our whole being is dried up. There is nothing at all except this manna before our eyes. How many of you know where manna came from? They didn't have like a bakery shop, you know. <laughs> the Bible accounts for this, that, that manna would supernaturally appear on the ground in the morning, every morning, there'll be fresh manna produced for them. They didn't even need to keep it. God would even command them to not keep this manna. You don't have to uh, uh, have stockpiles of manna uh, in, in your doomsday shelter. You know, I'm going to provide for you every day. And this story accounts for this, that the children of Israel grew sick and tired of manna. They lost gratitude for the everyday miracle. They lost their sense of wonder. They lost their sense of awe. They lost that feeling of being impressed with God because of the everyday miracle. When we lose our wonder, it leads us to this dangerous place of complaining, of, of, of uh, losing our gratitude for the Lord. And that's such a commentary on the modern day church today. Do you know that by Old Testament standards, you are not allowed to be sitting here right now. Do you know that you are to have no access to the presence of God? Do you know that you are not permitted to worship? You are not permitted to bring an offering? Do you know that you are not permitted to serve? Do you know that you are not even permitted to say His name out loud? In the old days, when they wrote the name of the Lord, every time they wrote that name, they would take the pen to which they wrote that name and ceremoniously burn it because uh, they, they didn't want it to be used anymore. And they had to repeat this process over and over again every time they wrote the name of the Lord. And today we profess the name of the Lord freely. Some even use it as a cuss word. Do you know that eating siobang is a product of the new covenant? <laughs> it's true. In the Old Testament, they weren't out to eat pork. Every time you have pork belly, you'll be like, finish work of Christ, man. Thank you, Lord. They lost their wonder for the everyday miracle. And, and the, the story doesn't, just doesn't stop there. We all know that the children of Israel then went down a slippery slope from losing their wonder, the sense of awe and gratitude for the Lord. They went down a slippery slope and the Bible accounts for acts after acts after acts of disobedience, mistrust in the Lord. Again and again and again. And it accumulated in this verse in Numbers 
32. It says this, So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. They went down a slippery slope of mistrust, disobedience to the Lord. It started from them losing their wonder. And it produced uh, this lack of gratitude that accumulated in the Lord pronouncing judgment over them. You are to wonder in this wilderness for the years. My suggestion to you this morning is that Israel wandered in the wilderness because they lost their wonder. Israel wandered because they lost their wonder. There's a cost to losing our wonder. We all know in the Garden of Eden that the serpent essentially questions two attributes of the Lord in a moment. Is God really that powerful that is able to kill you? And is God really that good that he would withhold knowledge from you? Whenever the goodness and the power of God is questioned, that becomes a foundation for disobedience. When we lose our sense of awe and wonder of God's goodness and power, it will produce a lack of gratitude. It will produce disobedience. Losing our sense of wonder, our awe, our reverence of God has a cost. Am I making sense? I'll close with a last special scripture. We don't have to turn to it, but Mark 8 accounts for uh, this story. Um, Mark 8, you know, if you read uh, the top portion, uh, um, accounts for the story where Jesus feeds the multitude, right? They, uh, They fed five loaves, two fishes, and the disciples were there. They witnessed the whole thing. And, uh, Interesting thing is, a couple of verses down, uh, there's another uh, 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 story, and uh, it was when the disciples uh, were panicking. They were like, Jesus, oh my gosh, we don't have enough bread. And they were panicking. They were like, oh my gosh, like, what are we going to do? We're going to starve. Like, we need to go and find bread. And a few verses up, they saw the miraculous work of God. They saw God bring about provision. But a few verses down, they lost their sense of faith or wonder of God. And it led to them panicking. And then Jesus became aware of it and said this to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? He says this to them, Having ears, I having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not Remember, I'm going to close with this. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Hearing and seeing, okay, I attribute it to a spiritual gift, to be able to hear, to be able to see. Remembering is a spiritual discipline. It's a choice that you get to make you get to make a conscious choice to remember. The way we keep ourselves in the wonder and the awe of God is to remember, to revisit, to recount, to remember from whence we came from. And the practical thing I do is this. Every time I come into church, every time I partake in worship, every time I 
I, uh, you know, come on Sunday morning, I remember what price was paid for me to enjoy these benefits. I remember that there was a people in the days of old that didn't have access to the things I have access to now. I remember that worship is a privilege. I remember that serving is a privilege. I remember that offering is a privilege. I remember the presence of God is not a luxury, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And when we do that, we keep ourselves in the wonder of God. We keep ourselves in a place of reverence or being captivated by, or being impressed with the Lord. So the three points, obedience, conviction, and reverence. Obedience, to live a life devoted to hearing His voice. Conviction, to live a life devoted to living to the standards to which He has called me to live. Reverence, to live a life devoted to discovering, rediscovering, and constantly being in awe and wonder of Him crazy endeavor. It demands my life, my all. I started this sermon with a question. How do we honor a God who has everything? Simple. We honor Him with everything. Can we stand?